A love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patience, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Believe room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Charles. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we've come to a place together to worship you. And when, you, when we hear your word, just the words spoken without any elaboration are so convicting, are so nourishing, are so necessary. I pray that we would, we would sit here to drink up your word, that I would be able to bring clarity to things we're struggling with, to push us in areas where we resist, to lead us into places where we don't want to go in the city so that we can more become people like you. I pray that you would, you would bring us peace today, that you would bring us joy today, that you would bring us unity. In your name, amen. amen. So this is part two of our vision series. And so we have two, two sermons that I wanted to really dive into to settle us on our own two feet. I've been using this analogy a lot lately. To stand firm on our two feet so that we can deal with the headwinds and all of the things that are coming at us and so that we can know where we're heading as a church over the course of this next season, however that long that may be, until we need to sort of pivot that focus and energy and I was looking through Romans 12, and this chapter just caught me as a chapter that really shows us how we ought to live, how we ought to be, how God desires us to be anchored, and where he is sending us and how he's doing that. So the first, the first week was laying the groundwork for how the gospel changes who we are, how it forms us as people. So that the gospel for us as a church, a citizen's church, and as a larger church, we are not doing anything unique here. We are participating in the worldwide church as people where the gospel is central. It's foundational. Nothing else is at the center of our life. Only one thing can be in the center, right? And that's Jesus Christ who died, was crucified, and rose again. 
and the forgiveness of our sins to show us eternal life. That is the gospel. If it's central in our life, we should be fluent in it, right? We should be able to say that in a moment's notice. What's the gospel? I know it. I know it because I can say it 20 different ways because I know what Jesus did for me and I know what it means for me. That's gospel centrality and that brings gospel fluency, right? Because we are transformed. It's our native. It becomes, right? Almost like a native language. I don't want to say native language because one of the metaphors I used was we are immigrants in a foreign land, right? We always have to work on it. But if you've lived in a foreign country for most of your life, you become fluent, right? You learn it, you adopt it, you become it. We are people who become Christ people. That's what it means to be Christian. And lastly, that that calls us to a purpose. So if we're in a place in our life where we're floundering, where we just feel directionless, or where we're pushing and things aren't giving, we can say, where do I need to go, God? What is, what is your purpose for me? Where do you want me? And his purpose is clear. Where he's sending you is to confess him and proclaim him wherever you go. It's not so static and so locked in as we're programmed when we're brought up. We're not being bred and groomed to become a, a nurse or an artist or an engineer. God says, no, all of the things, here's what you need to do with them such a huge difference in that from how we're programmed. So that was the first week, is looking at all of those ways that inform who we are and purpose us. And this week is very much the how to each of those. What is the how to having the gospel central? How do we do that? What is the how to being transformed into the gospel? What does that look like in the everyday? What are some traits we're going to need? And what is the how to the purpose and the calling? How do you live out the calling of Jesus and the way of Jesus in your life. How is that going to feel? What are you going to be? And so here's, here's the three points that that brings us through as we walk through this text. The how of gospel centrality, where it takes us, is to feed off of God's goodness. Right? If the gospel is central, it means that it is our diet. Right? The gospel is what we live off of. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We know that phrase. Right? That means there is a singular thing that we are hungering and thirsting for in our life. There is a singular diet that is the right diet. But if you think about the way we typically run our lives, it's kind of like a stock portfolio, right? It's better to diversify. Don't get too hung up on any one thing. So we're programmed to, you know, get attached to your job, but don't get too attached. Get attached to your kids, but don't get too attached. Get attached to your family, but don't get too attached. And I think sometimes we take that cultural understanding of the diversification as a good thing, and we apply it to our spirituality, and we say, let's diversify my spiritual portfolio. Right? Let's invest a little bit in, in Christianity and faith, but let's also keep the door open to some other things. Maybe, maybe put a few dollars here and a few dollars here. Right? We might do that with other religions, but I think more in this room, we're, not, we're saying, yes, I profess Jesus. He is my one and only Savior. But I also have this, this, and this thing that are central in my life. Right? 
but also it's really important to me that I fall in love with the right guy or the right woman, right? Or also it's really important to me that my kid is successful. Or it's really important to me that I own a house and that I, that I live up to my parents' expectations. We have these other things that we're living for, these other, these other anchors that we've set down, right? We've tethered ourselves to something else. We're, in short, we are worshiping something else. We've decided to have a diet of faith in Jesus, but we graze, and we have late night snacks, and we do these other things, right? We break the rules, and we know that's what we're doing. It's no, like, it's no secret at 11 p.m. when you pull the Oreos off the top of the fridge what you're doing. You know what you're doing. You've just decided to do it, right? You've justified it in some way. So if we think about this first part of this passage in Romans 12, I want to look just at the first verse, right? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast, it says in the ESV, to what is good. Cling to what is good is what it says in some versions, right? Cling to. What do you cling to? Clinging is like an anchor, right? It's something that you don't want to let go of. We don't want to let go of God's goodness. We desire it so much that we just want to hold on to it, right? It is the diet that nourishes us. And so what does that look like for us in our life? What is the practical application of that, of that desire? And it starts, I just, practically, I want to spell it out in the church for you a little bit. It starts for me, looking at me as a leader, looking at Alex and I as elders, and saying, what is our job as shepherds, right? What is our job to bring and prepare food for you throughout the week? We, ha we have a job to bring and prepare spiritual food in a way that is winsome and attractive and edifying for you. We have a responsibility. And that responsibility comes with certain things that are not particularly uh, glorious or fun, right? There is, there is a tackling of the text or there is a going to a meeting at a time of night or a time of day when you, it's inconvenient for you. There's a shepherding process that we're committed to as a church to say, as we go through this next season, how can we serve you, right? But that trickles down. The whole reason that we're doing that as a church, the whole reason that we meet together in our life groups during the week, the whole reason we, we come on Sundays is in the purpose of discipleship, right? So it is, it is not simply that the church is a place where you come like a buffet line to get the spiritual diet and it's prepared for you and it's nice and then you go home. There's actually a progressive, sanctifying nature to what's happening to you right now. Even if you forget this sermon in five hours and you couldn't tell me one specific thing about it, I believe that during this time, the Holy Spirit is convicting and changing your heart. And progressively, over time, what is happening is that you are becoming more like Jesus. It's a discipleship. He said, go and make disciples of all nations to his apostles. So not just Alex and I as elders have a role. All of you have a role in becoming that which can disciple. You are discipling so that you can disciple. So let's come back to our metaphor for a second. If we're using the spiritual food, and, and hold with me, I know this metaphor is a little hokey. I was like putting this metaphor together. I'm like, I've heard this too many times, the spiritual food thing. Really think to yourself, where am I in this? 
where am I with this diet? And challenge yourself as you're, as you're thinking, okay, this is a simple illustration, yada, yada, I'm prepared to write it off, right? Where am I in this diet piece? Do I have the right diet? Do I know what the right food is? Am I coming on Sunday and during the week I actually know what to look for and I kind of know what I believe? Do I have that piece in place, right? Then next, am I taking and am I actually eating the diet? Right? If, if you're going to work out and you're going to lose weight or whatever it is you're, you're, you're dieting for, right? there is a program that you are on. There's a regiment, there's a structure, there's habits, there's disciplines. And so the next step in this process is, are you disciplining yourself? Are you being disciplined well and are you disciplining yourself throughout that week? Are you saying, I am at least dutifully pursuing God, right? I'm at least dutifully doing this. That's step one. And then you have to say, am I actually desiring to do this? And if I'm desiring to do this, to what end? To what end am I desiring to know Jesus? Why, why do I come here? Why am I part of this community? And it ought to be, it ought to be to show this to more people. If you are not coming here to this church to learn about Jesus so that you can live a way of Jesus that shows him to other people, something has gotten off. Everything about this process is not just to learn and eat good food and enjoy a good meal, but to actually enjoy it so much that when you, have you ever been to a restaurant with somebody who really likes food, right? And they sit down and they eat and they go, what is, what is, that, what is that spice in there? And then someone across the table is really into it. I've been in this place many times, by the way, because my wife and her mother are, like, really into cooking, right? And so they'll get into these conversations. I'll just basically just, like, turn to the other person and start talking because I just can't even get involved. I have no frame of reference. But if I really desired that food so much that I wanted to make it, every time I ate really good food, I would begin to say, what is it about this? How do I do this? I want to make this. I love this so much, I want to recreate this, right? I don't know if any of you feel like you're creatives in the room. I think we're all in some way creatives, but especially for creative people, there is this like sort of pseudo envy that happens when you see something really great because you just want to make it. Like you want to do it as well as you saw it. And you're like, oh, I'm kind of jealous because like that was such a good idea. How do I do that? And so you sit into the late hours of the night copying and sketching and drawing or playing that song over and over again because you really, really, really loved it so much. You want to be able to do it. Is our desire as we come to a church in unity with fellow believers to love this so much that we want to be able to go show this and do this and say this? We want to be able to say, I know who Jesus is because I met him and I spend time with people who know him and I want to be able to share that. Is that why we're here? Because it takes a certain level of humility. I think if you look at, at if you start in that text, right, verse 9, we say, okay, hold fast to what is good. What is the overarching sort of statement being read in Romans 12? And you have to, you have to actually jump back to the beginning where we were last week. And so if I go back to the beginning, I can say in verse one of what we talked about last week, he says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
And then later on in verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than we ought to think. So what is the theme? What is the crux? What, what, is, what is Paul building on? Humility. Paul is building on this idea that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we are, right? It's, it's perfectly said. And everything that Charles just said when he, when he read through the word builds on that humility. It builds on that sense that if we don't see ourselves as more highly, if we don't see ourselves as already an amazing cook, that can, oh, I can do that. I don't even need to think about what's in that dish. Because I can do that already. I already know all that stuff. And then somebody says, oh, great, great, cook me a meal. And you get in the kitchen, and you start, and you don't even know where to start. Let's just be real. Like, you don't even know where to start because you were proud. All throughout the Old Testament, we get this story over and over again. I was thinking about how do we illustrate this idea of pride versus humility in our walk, in who we are. And if you look at the Tower of Babel, right, the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the story of the people who God had created saying, I want to be seen, I want to be known, I want to build a skyscraper. Right? Why do you build a skyscraper? So everyone can look at it all the time. That's why people build skyscrapers, because they're a monument they're a statement of their own glory. So pride in our hearts led us to build as people that were created. They led them to build this tower, basically to worship themselves, right? And then you look at how God works. He destroys that tower. He said, here's how I work. I pick a people. I pick a people, and then I let them know, I am your dad, and you are my children. Humility, like such a contrast, right? He's not asking us to build huge monuments. He is saying, be my children, live in humility to me. Hold fast to me. If holding fast to what is good is not simply being moral, right? You could read this passage and you could say, oh, well, what Paul is really saying here is just that we need to be moral people. We just need to be people who do the right things, follow the Ten Commandments, do nice things to people, and then we'll go to heaven. But we know full well from our whole series on 1 John, right? What is goodness? God is goodness, right? His good and perfect will is not good and perfect because, it's, because somehow we see his will as a good thing, right? That it has all the things we think of as good and we go, oh, we can apply all the good things we see in life. We can just, God's like that. No, it's, it's the opposite. God will, God's will, his, his absolute will is the definition of good. It's the definition of perfect because it's his will. He's the father and we're anchoring, we're holding fast not to what is good, but to what is God. We're holding fast to him. Singularly, not as a diversified system, but as a singular goodness. Right? And if we, we, if we look at this diet, if we, if we look at this diet thing, we can also look at it this way. We can say, where am I to fast? Fasting is a huge part, right, of spiritual discipline, an area that I, I know very little about, admittedly, Right? But here's one thing I know. When you fast, you're being intentional to not 
do something, right? You're saying there are things in my life that are out of whack. I'm going to get rid of those things to focus. I'm going to fast to focus on God. We don't just fast to like withhold something from us just because. We fast because we want to replace what we were filling with food with God. We say, I'm going to take that time. Every time I feel hungry, I'm going to pray. Right? We take that space and we allocate it. We say, that is God's space where it always should be. And I need to remind myself. So I'm going to go through a time where I can remind myself of that. So we may be in a place where we're just discovering good food. And that's great. And that takes us on a journey, right? To a place of discipleship where we ought to be learning how to cook. And then we may get in places Paul talks about, he has 20 different commands here, and he goes through them each one at a time. And I can't possibly do justice to all 20 of them, right? But he says in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. What on earth does that mean? Do not be slothful in zeal. It seems like an oxymoron, right? Because zeal is just like being so on for something, right? A zealot is somebody who's just like dedicated warrior, right? To be slothful in zeal, what is that? This, this is what slothful and zeal is. I, uh, I was taking care of my son Ezra the other day, and it was just me and him, and I'm going back and forth between all these different things, and I'm trying to like pack way too many things. I'm not really always just watching Ezra, let's be honest. Like I'm trying to get some work done. I'm sending an email. I'm holding on, putting on a show. Like, I'm, tr- I'm always trying to do way too many things. And we go to leave the door, and I go, I haven't even eaten lunch. And I open the microwave, and there's my food sitting in the microwave. Right? I open the microwave, there's my food sitting right there. How many people have done this, right? You're like, you open the microwave to put something else in it, and there's your cup of coffee from the morning that you totally forgot about, right? There is, there is an element to our lives that is slothful in zeal in that way. Here's what I mean. We are, we are completely sort of unstructured, unstructured in our passion, right? Oh, yeah, I'm going to make food for myself. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna... And then, like, it's all just in disarray. We have zeal, but there's a slothful, there's a laziness to it. There's actually a lack of discipline in our passion, right? That can be, that can be one way that we're slothful in zeal. And here can be the other way. Uh, basically, over-religiosity, right? That we're so, so into the diet, right? Man, I'm, I'm really into this new diet, and it's so great. It costs me like $400 a month, and they mail it all to me. Oh, but it's so good, right? This diet, you you should do this diet. That is just like blatant religiosity. Because what are you saying? Hey, if you pay $400, you can have the great thing I have, right? Or you say, hey, this diet's so good for me. I'm going to go home and eat it now to your friend, right? Like we're gorging ourselves on a feast. Some of us are gorging ourselves on a feast of God. We're, We're reading scripture. We're praying we're hanging out with our church. We're doing all of the right things, but we're just doing those things. We're actually slothful in our zeal because we've left out this whole component of why. This is not just about us as a church. So part of my vision here, hear me, part of my vision is that we are here to learn, we are here to build the spiritual diet, but we're here to do that in order that we can do something, in order that we can share it. 
lest we become spoiled, right? If we just feast on great food all the time, we become very out of touch with reality. Do not be slothful in zeal, he says, but be fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit to serve the Lord. Another translation said to glow in the spirit. Fervent means to heat up. I think of it like this. The spirit should be at a boil in our life, right? It should be at a boil. And what do I mean by that? Not that we're crazy and hyper and preaching to everyone we talk to and that everything's always just like totally weirdly about God all the time. No, I'm not always saying it's like that. I'm saying it should be at a boil. It's ready to throw in the food. That's what at a boil means, right? When you've got something out of boil, it's ready for the next step. The spirit should be primed and ready in your life. You're so aware of the truth. You so know it that you're ready for anything that comes at you, right? Anything in your life, any triumph and any utter failure, the spirit's at a boil and ready to handle that, right? How do we do that? Verse 12, rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Paul just straight up spells it out for us, right? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So I want to walk through a story here to illustrate this. Matthew 14, if you want to turn in your Bibles, it's a great story to read with me. Matthew 14, verse 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. This happened often with Jesus. He'd be teaching a group of people on the Sea of Galilee. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that he basically does like this zigzag across the lake. He like teaches people and then he's like, later, goes to the other side, teaches another group of people, goes to the other side. The boat is like the way that he gets away from that crowd to a new group of people because he's so into getting the message out there. He's never with one crowd for too long. Right? So he says, he, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of the sea while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Jesus is walking on water in the middle of the night in like a storm, some kind of heavy winds, right? When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then here's Peter, I love Peter. Lord, if it's you, he replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And then Peter got down out of the boat and he walked into the water and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You of little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter is the only man besides Jesus to ever walk on water. He did it. 
He, he even asked for God's permission, right? Peter's, Peter's progressively learning. I love Peter, man, because that guy made every mistake you can make. If there was ever a zealous person, it was Peter, right? He's like, hold on, Jesus, I'll cut that guy's ear off for you. We're good. Like, he is a zealous guy. He's just, he's always do before you think, right? He's like heart first kind of guy. I love Peter. I love Peter. And I, I so relate to Peter. Because even though he has that purity of heart, he's also just so human in the way he's freaking out all the time. He's just freaking out about everything, right? He, he's like in this like state of like kind of probably heightened everything, right? They're on a boat. Jesus isn't with them. They're like, man, I wish Jesus had come with us. Now we're in a storm, and it would be really nice if Jesus was with us. It's the middle of the night. They can't make it to where they want to go because the headwinds are against them, right? And they're scared. They're in a place in their life where even though they're doing all the right things and they did what they were supposed to do, things are going wrong for them. Things aren't really working out. They're not getting to where they want to go. It's taking too long. They're tired, right? The next day, Jesus is going to come and be like, let's go, and they're going to be exhausted because they were trying to get across the lake the whole night. They're behind on everything they need to get done, right? The unexpected has happened. And they're discouraged. And even though they, what's the first thing they think of when they see Jesus walking to them? It's a ghost, right? They've even distorted Jesus himself into just being part of their fear, right? The things that they're seeing are all, all informed by their fear. And so everything that happens when they're in that state, that very human state of disappointment, of discouragement, of everything going wrong. It's like when you come home and you just can't stop complaining, right? Everything in your day was horrible. I heard my daughter say, this is the worst day of my whole entire life. You know, like she comes home, this is the worst day. And that's just so human because so many days we come home from whatever it is we're doing and it's the worst day of our entire life. We can't even see where God's been good, because all we see when we see Jesus is a ghost. We see somebody that's out to get us. We see something that makes us afraid. We're scared. We don't know what's going to happen. But Peter, in his desire to, to, to know God and to follow his will, he says, God, what should I do? And he says, come to me. And he goes, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. I'm going to do that thing. And like two or three steps into it, he probably is kind of like, oh, it's windy, I don't know. You know, like he's just freaking out. And he starts sinking. Because while Peter is zealous, he has that kind of slothful zeal we were talking about, putting the food in the microwave and going and doing the next thing. His mind's all over the place. And he loses it. Because he's not constant. He's not patient in his tribulation. He can't see the long game. Right? For those of you who are visual thinkers, I was thinking of like a sine wave, Right? If you know what a sine wave is, it's this kind of curve, right? The mechanical sort of electric thing, right? Where it's electricity flows in these waves and they go up and down, up and down, right? Our lives are like this, except our, our lives are more like this, you know, like a mountain, crazy mountain that are going up and down with valleys and peaks and everything's all over the place, right? And what, what Paul is saying is he's saying, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. There's a line in the middle of those graphs. There's always a line that that wave is going around. There's a constant. God is saying, I am a constant. I am a constant goodness through your life. Prayer 
is a way to be constantly with me in your life. Patience is acknowledging that that is going to take you to the end that I promised you, despite all of these other things happening. And he's asking us, he's saying, in our desire, in, be, have the zeal and don't be slothful with it. Desire and do the things that I'm calling you to do. So as a church, we're asking, Drennan said this the other day in our, in our life group, and I loved it. He said, fail forward. Right, Drennan? Fail forward. As we're doing life, know that every failure in the pursuit of God is taking us closer to him. That we are taking the Bible, we are taking theory, and we're turning it into memory. We are taking something told to us, and we're making it into practice that we can look back and say, God worked in my life, and he worked that way. You will not as likely win people over in the next few years as you are telling people about Jesus. You will not as likely win them over simply by preaching the word alone to them. They're looking at you. Right? You can street preach and I appreciate your zeal and like it might do wonders. God's spirit can work in all ways. You go out in a corner and you stand up and you just go for it on your soapbox. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not telling you you have to step down. Right? You are bold. But people are looking at your character. People are looking at your character and they're saying, who is this person? And what has he done? And why on earth should I do this? Why should I follow this? And if you're putting that theory into memory, then you have a story to tell people. So, as a church... We are feeding off of God's goodness. We are listening and we are being patient in prayer. I want us to remember this. We're feeding off God's goodness and as a church, we are going to be patient and in prayer. This is going to be so important for us over the next season. We are going to have, we're going to have weeks with each other where we're fighting with each other and there isn't unity that we want to have in our relationships. We're going to have weeks where in our workplace we just can't seem to get anywhere with witness to other people. We're trying and, and nobody's responding. We're going to get into places where uh, in our own personal life and health and families, there is huge heartache. That is going to happen to us. And if we don't have this patience in the constant goodness of God and a prayer that's devoted, we're going to be like Peter, turning back, weak in faith, and beginning to sink in the water. And the third, the, third, the third thing that we want to look at is the how of gospel transformation. Right? The, sorry, the how of gospel calling. The how of gospel purpose. And the key here, and this is what really Paul spends the rest of this time on, right? Most of this passage is about how we ought to relate to each other in the world. How do we live this humility? How do we live in a way where we are children in a family of God and not building our own tower to exalt ourselves? And he says it right at the beginning in verse 1, chapter 12. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything else, everything else from verse 13 on through 21 is all about that. That we are a living sacrifice. 
So who is Paul writing to as his original audience here? He was writing to the church in Rome where he had never been. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles, people that were God's people and had grown up saying, I'm God's people. I know I'm supposed, I'm meant for something. God's blessed me, right? Those are the Jews. And the Gentiles, people who the Jews have said historically, nope, it's not your God, right? Nope, you're not allowed into our thing. And he's saying, not anymore, guys. I'm going to mash it all together. Jesus mashed it all together. And Paul is saying, I'm going I'm to write, write, write. I'm going to get my pen going to you guys because you need it because you are fighting. You're going to fight over stuff. There's going to be a lack of unity with you. But what else is happening at this time to the church? From Paul's writings onward, what is happening to the church? All the way until 300 AD, the church is being persecuted. They're being hunted down and killed. Christianity is not a cool thing. It's underground, right? These are like the rebel revolutionary culture. The Romans don't want them to exist. Nobody wants them to exist, and they're just trying to smash them. And Paul is writing to people in this time with such paradoxical language, right? He's saying, he's saying, repay no one evil for evil, but get thought, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, leave, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. There are people who probably have family members or good friends in their church that have been slaughtered and killed or imprisoned. And he's saying this to them. And here we are in Portland, right? Is that happening to us? Are we having people slaughtered and killed? No, it's not happening to us. But there is a level of persecution that is going to happen against the church. There's a level of hatred and animosity towards us. We will not be a witness. We will not be a light in that if we are trying to avenge ourselves, if we're trying to get political power, if we're trying to have the upper hand. In fact, we accept and we say, I have nothing, right? I am nobody. I don't want to push this from some political place of power to get my way to, to lord myself over you because that's the opposite of what I'm all about. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees, <laughs> slothful in their zeal, right? Feasting on their own food and closed doors in their own houses. Paying for the $400 diet and saying, no, it's mine, and this is how you got to do it, and you have to pay before you can get in on this, right? That's not the church we're supposed to be. Our doors are wide open, not just to our building, but to our hearts, to our lives. Everything we are about, vulnerability, right? We are to be living sacrifices. If you look in the Bible, there's stories over and over in the Old Testament of people living out this idea of being a living sacrifice. If you look at Israel, most notably, in times of ex exile, right? So think about Joseph in Egypt, right? How did he get there? Just horrendous stuff happened to him. He was like the favorite. He had the coat of many colors, right? He's the favorite in his family. Gets left for dead, ends up in Egypt, and says, I'm not going to see Jesus as a ghost in my fear. I'm not going to see religion as something trying to keep me down. 
I'm not going to see my God as something other than what he is, which is a good God that is blessing me. How is God blessing me right now? That's the question he's asking. Not, is God blessing me right now? How is God blessing me right now? What's happening in my life? It's God's will. Those two things are true. It's happening. I know that this is happening. That's real. And I know that God's will is good. How do those reconcile? It must be that what is happening in my life is for a good end that he is taking me to. Rejoice in that hope, says Paul. He says rejoice in that. That's the hope. Rejoice in the fact that God is taking you somewhere right now with where you're at. He's put us into exile in a very real way in this church, in this city. As this small church, Citizens Church, we are in exile in Portland and we are here to show God in everything we do in the most normal ways in our workplace, to the most extraordinary praise that we can give God, right? And our character is key in that. Because if we think of ourselves as children in a family, if we think of ourselves as in service to the king, and that he's in control, then we have nothing to prove, we have nothing to do. It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it's coming, it's, it's a quote, in your Bibles there's quotes around that, and it's coming from Deuteronomy 32, 41, where it's written, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. So when we let people off the hook in our lives, when we give forgiveness, when we say, I am not going to go get what I feel like I deserve, or even what I feel like God is telling me is, is good for me right now. Not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to decide not to go get that thing with a heart of vengeance. I'm going to decide not to be the judge of that person or that event. And instead, I'm going to acknowledge that God is in total control of my life, and he will bring the end to people that he wills. If people are antagonizing, if they're enemies to God, if they are blaspheming and mocking him, God will bring an end to that. But it's not for you to do, church. It's not for us to do that. It says in verse 20, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Interesting parallel to the Beatitudes right there, right? that we ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, not just with food, but with godly character. If your enemy is hungry, show him everything that is good, including lavishing him. If he is thirsty, give him to something to drink. Now, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. What on earth does that mean? I'm not following here. I'm not following. How, how is it that we're supposed to do all these good things? And why does that mean that we'd be putting, what does that even mean? Putting, putting burning coals on his head. And again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. Paul knows his Bible. He's quoting Proverbs 25. He's saying this. Look, when we act out of the unexpected towards other people around us in goodness to their evil, what we are actually doing is we're bringing shame to their evil. We're showing them Jesus, not in the typical way you might think of like letting them walk all over you, right? We're showing them Jesus by saying, no, this is what I believe. 
I'm going to do the right thing. And letting shame come to them in their ego. Not intentionally shaming them, right? But saying, I'm going to stick with what I do, right? In the, stories, in the stories of Daniel, what happens when he's in exile? All of the other leaders are plotting around him, and he is staying constant in prayer, fervent in the spirit, rejoicing in hope, doing what is asked of him, doing his job as a leader of a, in a foreign place that is not worshiping God. He's doing his job, right? And all of these people are plotting around him. And Daniel stays true to the will of God. He stays true to that goodness. And what happens to those other leaders, right? After he goes, this, this well-known story, after he's cast into the lion's den, right? And he's pulled out. He says, Xerxes says, Daniel, your, your God is, is the true God. And he throws those other guys in, right? But that's Daniel's heart when he was going down there isn't like, oh man, God, I'm so excited. When I get out of here, you're going to throw those other guys in and they're going to be toast. Like, that's not what Daniel was thinking. His heart was just praising God and God was doing his will. So it's not, we, we overcomplicate our lives, way overcomplicate them, trying to figure out and control the end to all of these people because it's out of the bitterness of our heart, right? We have enemies and we can't, we just have to admit that we, we have relational malfunctions with other people in the church and we are to be living sacrifices. So church, the third thing that I want to steer us to is that we live as living sacrifices. That we live as humble people in a world that wants us to be proud. And that we do that in such a way that the spirit is always a boiling point in our life. And the only way we can do that is if we're studying God's goodness, if we're in community around his goodness, if we're caring about it, we know it's the truth, the singular and only truth. And we are so patient through it. In Revelation, John writes to, to many different churches. If you read Revelation, it's a trip, right? He's writing to all these different churches. And it's really interesting, if you actually dig into each of these churches historically, he is looking at something that makes this church who they are. And then he's using it to tell the story. So the church of Laodicea, which is one, if you grew up in faith, you might know about this, right? Laodicea, he says, he, 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 like, he, he says, woe to you, essentially, for being lukewarm. For being lukewarm. He has this, this convicting statement to say, you are, you're neither hot nor cold. And he goes, I spit you out. And the actual word of that is vomit. He vomits them out. God vomits this church. I mean, ugh. That's not good if you're in that church. Better not be lukewarm. But what's so interesting about this is that Laodicea was a church in a place, in a region, where two springs of water were coming in. There was a, a spring of water from one city that was the hot water. And then there was another spring that was the cold water. And by the time they got to Laodicea, it was all lukewarm. It was all just kind of this tepid water. So everybody knew this about this church. Everybody, and he says, not just your water. You guys are lukewarm. And it's such an indictment to us as a church. May we not be a lukewarm church, right? May we be a church that is not satisfied with that kind of sloth in our zeal, right? May we be a church that says, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. For you, God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you.
that you have given us these friends, these people, this church. I thank you that, that you settle with your spirit on us and that you transform even the words that come out of our mouth to convict us more than we ever could ourselves. Lord, that you are at work here and not me. That each of us in our lives can see you at work and not ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time in your name.